this week, we're going to explore great places to find the ghosts of Christmas's past. Meaning, we're going to visit historic places that deck the halls in a major way for the holiday season and give you a sense of Christmas from times gone by. However, in addition to conjuring the Christmas spirit, there are also great places to find restless spirits, too. We've got a lot of stops ahead, so let's get this sleigh on its way. Hello fellow restless spirit, thanks so much for tuning in to sail the airwaves with me for our haunted Christmas season. As I mentioned to start this episode, this week we're heading to historic haunted places dedicated to bringing the Christmas season from bygone eras alive. Before we head off to our first stop, I'll quickly remind you to subscribe if you haven't already. That way, you won't miss any of our episodes. And if you're feeling generous this holiday season and like what you hear, you can help this little elf out by leaving a rating and or a review if your podcast provider allows it. It really does make a difference, and I appreciate you making the time to take the time. Okay, so without further ado, let's hit our first destination. We'll start out west with a decades-old Christmas tradition the Brace Bridge Dinner at the Awani Hotel in Yosemite National Park, California. During the Christmas season, the Awani Hotel offers a seven-course formal dinner presented as a feast given by a Renaissance-era lord. It's inspired by a Yule celebration story, or perhaps stories, from The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, Gent, by the Legend of Sleepy Hollow author, Washington Irving. In the story Christmas Eve, Jeffrey Crayon celebrates the holiday at the home of Squire Bracebridge, and in the stories Christmas Day and Christmas Dinner, Christmas festivities in the Old English tradition continue at Bracebridge Hall, as does Christmas Dinner Feasting. Irving would also publish a novel called Bracebridge Hall or The Humorous Melody, but I'm pretty sure it's the stories from the sketchbook that inspire the Grand Awani Dining Room's transformation into Manor Hall for its special dinner theater every Christmas. Well, I should say it did every year since 1927 until the COVID-19 pandemic canceled it in 2020 and again in 2021. Or spent it in hibernation, as they put it in the cancellation notice on their website. Speaking of olden times, 
Back when I had cable and Travel Channel showed shows about travel, they featured this 17th century English feast at the Awani Hotel that happens every Christmas. As soon as I saw the hotel, I was like, there has to be, there has to be ghosts there. So I researched it to find out if it had any, you know, paranormal activities for a post I wrote about best places to find the ghosts of Christmas past, which sort of ended up inspiring this episode. What I found out was that one of the hotel's former operators, Mary Curie Tresseter, has been reported on the sixth floor, where she used to live. Maids have also reported a rocking chair rocking on its own in the parlor of a fourth floor suite, but the catch to this one is, there is no rocking chair in that room. Other reports suggest ghosts from when the hotel was used by the Navy as a convalescent hospital in 1943 might account for sightings on the mezzanine level and the third floor. Now let's head to the Midwest and explore the haunted Christmas happenings at the Tinker Swiss Cottage in Rockford, Illinois. The museum and gardens have been on my list of haunted places I want to jaunt to ever since early 2018 when I spotted an announcement for an, at that time, upcoming documentary called Tinker's Shadow, The Hidden History of Tinker Swiss Cottage. I went to investigate what it would be about and was smitten as soon as I saw the cottage, which envision quotes around the word cottage because I don't know about you, but when I hear, hear that term to describe a house, I think small, quaint, and cozy. But the Tinker Swiss Cottage, with its Swiss someplace in the Alps style Victorian architecture, definitely looks quaint and cozy, but it's not exactly small. But it is open about its ghosts. Haunted Rockford sometimes conducts ghost tours there. And if you're a fan of Ghost Hunters, it was on Season 8, Episode 20. In addition to seeing full-bodied apparitions, other activity that's been reported includes being touched, as well as hearing voices, whistling, humming, and children playing. And speaking of Haunted Rockford, this year they did a Ghosts of Christmas Past tour at Tinker. Kathy Creasel from Haunted Rockford presented stories from, as she put it, the darker side of the holiday season. Tinker Executive Director Samantha Hockman illuminated guests about Tinker's history and shared tales of ghostly encounters guests and staff have experienced over the years. Now let's head east for some coastal haunts, starting out by checking out how they invoke the spirit of Christmas past in Mystic, Connecticut. Downtown Mystic's Lantern Light Village at the Mystic Seaport Museum, as they describe it, is designed to exemplify the differences between the modern and 19th century holiday seasons. 
Take a journey through time as you seamlessly transition between the holidays you experience today and the holidays of the past. But Mystic also understands the age-old tradition of spooky ghost stories at the holiday. They offer a spirited ghost tour called Ghosts of Christmas Past Strolls. I'm going to read the description they have for it. See if it doesn't pique your interest, too. What noted creatures walks the streets at holiday season? What curse haunts the landscape of Mystic? Which spirit only appears at a local restaurant during the holidays and why? Which spirit favors Christmas music? Might you hear her singing? What is one of the oldest documented Christmas stories ever told by a renowned Irishman? Find out all this and more on a downtown mystic ghost stroll guiding you through the bustling town of Mystic in the historic Drawbridge District. Walk by Lantern Light as we feature true stories of history and mystery. Guests will have the opportunity to capture evidence of paranormal phenomenon in the town and take a step back in time to stories filled with mystery and dark tales that are rarely told today. With a holiday theme, we tell tales of spooky Christmas lore and honor the long-standing New England Victorian tradition as established by Dickens of telling a ghost story. The beautiful seaside town is filled with lore and tales that are sure to send a chill up your spine and leave you wondering, who walks among us in the dead of night? I don't know about you, but me... Sold! All of that sounds right up my alley and makes me want to book a trip to Mystic right now. And if I did, I would consider booking a couple of other reservations while I was there too. One at the Captain Daniel Packer Inn, a restaurant in Mystic. It's believed seven-year-old Ada Clift haunts the establishment. However, she's mostly drawn to other children. Does smalls count? It might be considered bad form or child endangerment or something to to use a kid just to try and make contact with a ghost, right? But smalls? Well, he is child size and he loves making new friends. Maybe Ada would be curious about him and make her presence known to us that way. The other place I'd look into booking, it's just fun to say, if you're bored, it's kind of like Akuna Matata, just say booking and see if it doesn't make you feel better. Anyways, the other place that I would want to stay has another captain name. Captain Grant's 1754 is a spooky stay a short drive from Mystic. It's a National Historic Inn with five bedrooms that's decorated in vintage decor and it looks absolutely New England charming. There's a tab on the inn's site called Authors Page, which is a little bit misleading, but if you click that, that's where they showcase Carol Matsumoto's book, The Ghosts of Captain Grant's Inn, which gives a history of the house, accounts of its hauntings, and examines the spirit world and the science of investigating it. 
Mostly it tells of all the challenges Matsumoto had to overcome to renovate the house to make it what it is today, including a paranormal hotspot where paranormal investigators and para-enthusiasts can interact with the inn's friendly restless spirits, who are known to be a little mischievous. Reports of activity include things sometimes disappearing, loud bangs, and disembodied voices. But again, they're friendly. We're going to stay on the East Coast as we drop down to check out how they celebrate Christmas in Victorian Cape May, New Jersey. Back in 2010, Haunt Johns unofficially awarded Cape May with the distinction of being the city that best promoted its paranormal tourism. The Seaside Vacation Spot is a National Historic Landmark thanks to all of its Victorian architecture. Back in 2010, I couldn't help but take note of all the ways it embraced itself as a haunted travel destination. At Christmas, there are many ways to feel the ghosts of Christmas past in Cape May, including with a good old-fashioned Christmas parade and tree lighting ceremony. They also have a variety of tour options, too, including holiday lights trolley rides, Christmas candlelight light tours, and a lamp lighter Christmas tour. They even have a Ghost of Christmas Past trolley tour. Many of the tours pass by some of Cape May's most haunted places, including the Congress Hall Hotel, which also transforms itself into a winter wonderland for Christmas, with activities like igloos for dining in, train rides, and even breakfast with Santa. The third floor hallway of the hotel is rumored to be haunted, and reports of hearing children playing when no children are around is not uncommon. Could it be the ghost of a little boy who's rumored to have drowned in front of the hotel? But perhaps the most haunted house in Cape May that you'll see on many of the tours, in some cases you even get to go inside on them, is the Emlyn Physic Estate. It was built in 1879 and at that time was Cape May's largest house. It stayed in the Physic family until the 1930s, then switched hands multiple times and fell into disrepair until the Mid Atlantic Center a.k.a. Mac, bought it in the 1970s. Mac restored it and turned it into a Victorian museum. However, it's believed Dr. Emlyn Physic, his mom, and his aunts still haunt the home. Reports of paranormal activity include feeling cold spots, being touched by unseen hands, hearing unexplainable noises, hearing footsteps and voices, and some have even spotted the apparition of a woman in period clothing. It might be hard to differentiate people dressed in period clothing costumes from apparitions in our next stop. Let's explore what Christmas in historic Williamsburg, Virginia has to offer. 
If you really want to immerse yourself in 17th and 18th century Christmastide celebrations, visit the Outdoor Living History Museums at the nearby Jamestown Settlement and the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown. As Visit Williamsburg put it, both will be decked in boughs of holly for the annual event that features musical demonstrations, holiday food, and live stories. But in Colonial Williamsburg itself, you'll find the ghosts of Christmas past come alive with music, storytelling, and even good old-fashioned Christmas markets on certain weekends where artisans sell their handmade wares. You may even see Father Christmas strolling the square. As far as haunted places in Colonial Williamsburg, well... It doesn't make many of the best most haunted cities lists for no reason. With all of its history, there are ghosts aplenty. We'll just focus on a few of the most popular haunted places, starting with the Wren Building, which is built on a crypt and served as a hospital for wounded soldiers in both the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. Some have reported hearing disembodied screams coming from the crypt, and phantom soldiers have been spotted patrolling halls late at night. In the King's Arms Tavern, an authentic reproduction public house, servers dress in 18th century costumes and evoke true colonial spirit. However, Colonial Ghosts, the ghost tour company, reports that a woman named Irma may haunt the establishment. Some say she died in a fire, resulting from a dropped candle. Whenever a candle suddenly goes out for no reason, they say it's Irma. But Colonial Ghosts also points out the spirit may belong to a woman who was a Colonial Williamsburg employee who died of a heart attack in the tavern. Sounds like a good place for an EVP session to me. Speaking of ghost tour companies, there are a few in Williamsburg, but if you take the Haunted Williamsburg Tour, it's the official Colonial Williamsburg Ghost Tour and has exclusive access to historic outdoor spaces. I'm not sure that's the one that my friend Pamela K. Kinney took when she referred to it in her Virginia's Haunted Historic Triangle book, but the tour she took stopped at another haunted Colonial Williamsburg tavern, the Shields Tavern. Kinney wrote that some have reported seeing a woman in green, and she also shared a story her ghost tour guide told them about an assistant manager who closed up one night. But when she left, she saw a light and the upstairs was still on. So she went back to turn it off, left again, but when she was outside, guess what? The light was back on. Frustrated, she asked a co-worker who was waiting for a ride to come back in with her. When she returned to the room with the light on this time, Everything in the room had been rearranged, so she took the time and put things back in order and asked before she turned the light off once again if they could please just leave it off this time. When she got back outside, the light was off, but she saw the silhouette of a man in a tricorn hat in the window. But perhaps the most haunted place in Colonial Williamsburg is the Peyton Randolph House. 
the house dates back to the early 1700s. According to Dennis Hawk's Haunted Places National Directory, the house has seen a number of deaths, including those of small children and a couple of suicides. In her book, Pamela K. Kenny says there may be as many as 23 ghosts haunting the house. Both books report apparitions aren't uncommon, as is the sound of hearing glass breaking or mirrors shattering. They also both mention scary incidents concerning the basement. In Hawk's book, he says some have heard moaning coming from the basement. In Kinney's, she related a story her ghost tour guide shared about a guard who was making his rounds in the house. For whatever reason, he ended up stuck down in the basement. When no one had heard from him for a while, they went to check on him and found him looking terrified, crouched in the basement with his gun unholstered. He wouldn't say what had happened, but he did say he'd never step on a Colonial Williamsburg property again. We're going to stay in the South and drop down a bit to the coastal city of Charleston, South Carolina to see how they do Christmas in the Holy City. As you might imagine, this historic city celebrates with a healthy dose of Southern hospitality, too. The Visitor Center hosts the Festival of Trees, where you can admire dozens of themed and decorated Christmas trees for free. There are other seasonal activities, too, like Christmas parades, holiday markets, and all kinds of tours, including city and specific home and building tours. There's even a sleigh ride driven by one of Santa's elves that drives you through downtown Charleston, complete with caroling. The ride ends with a visit to Santa's barn, where cookies and hot cocoa and St. Nick, Mrs. Claus, and Rudolph are waiting to take pictures with you. Sounds both magical and delicious. Or magically delicious, as Lucky the Leprechaun would say, which... He looks like an elf, but I think leprechauns are closer to fairy folk and are definitely a symbol of St. Patrick's Day, not so much Christmas, but I couldn't help using a saying because it was perfect. Anyway, let me bring myself back to the topic at hand and proceed on to examining Charleston's haunted places. But where to begin? There are literally dozens and dozens. The best researched online accounts of them come from Southern Spirit Guide Lewis Powell IV. There were so many that he had to break them up into three separate posts on his site, which navigate haunts north of Broad, south of Broad, and Charleston environs. He has such a, he's very theatric and has such a way with words. If you don't know the Southern Spirit Guide, Lewis Powell IV, go check him out. I, I have definitely linked to the reference sources that I used from him in the show notes. North of Broad is where you'll find the St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which is a stop for many ghost tours. But the church has a definite stance on the matter. As Powell noted, they put up a sign that says, The only ghost at the church is the Holy Ghost. Other notable haunts include the Aiken Rhett House, where some have reported seeing apparitions of women. It's one of the restored Victorian residences you can tour during Christmas in Charleston. 
And then there's one of my favorites, Pugin's Porch, which is a restaurant on Queen Street that's named in honor of a dog. They tell the story on their site of how in 1976, the last residential owners moved away. The dog, Pugin, wasn't exactly theirs. He was more of a neighborhood dog. But he seemed to like the porch at 72 Queen best. Here's what the restaurant wrote about him on their website. Pugin became the guardian of the fledgling restaurant. From his perch on the front porch, he presided over the renovation process, and when we opened our doors for business, he greeted our first guests warmly. The restaurant family cherished him. He became an institution. Pugin died a natural death in 1979. This building is his monument. Some say Pugin's spirit still lingers there. Powell noted the spirit of a woman named Zoe St. Armand, one of two unmarried sisters who once lived in the house, has been spotted by both staff and patrons in the women's restroom and on the stairs. A little outside of the city, what Powell calls Charleston environs, there's Drayton Hall, one of Charleston's plantations turned museums. With almost 300 years of history saturating its walls, having witnessed and lived through both the American Revolutionary War and the Civil War, it's no wonder some believe they see spirits here. One of them may even be William Henry Drayton. Is he the man looking out of windows or walking down the avenue who some visitors and staff have reported seeing? Possibly. On select dates during the Christmas season, Drayton Hall offers candlelight tours. They're not necessarily ghost tours, but whether you see any paranormal activity or not, you'll get to enjoy a spirited evening either way. Charleston's other popular plantation that visitors flock to, one that's also said to be haunted, is Boone Hall. This year, the Plantation and Gardens hosted a Christmas tree festival, which was three days of food, music, vendors, and activities that included ornament decorating, a festive photo booth, and their classic festival Ferris wheel. However, for the whole season, the entire home is decorated for the holiday, which visitors can see during a tour of the home. And perhaps while you're exploring the Boone Hall plantations and gardens, you may glimpse one of the ghosts. Some have reported seeing the ghost of a soldier, others have reported seeing ghost slaves, and CHS Today reported the most commonly reported apparitions are of a young boy and girl. Basically, if you're looking for a place where you can step back in time to feel the spirit of Christmas past and perhaps find some ghosts, Charleston is, is a really great place to do that. Whether you're visiting one of the plantations or any of the city's many other haunted places. We're going to scooch just a smidge farther south now and wrap up this episode by checking out Christmas at the Jekyll Island Club Hotel in Jekyll Island, Georgia. 
Where would that be on? I'm not sure. In Jekyll Island, on Jekyll Island. Anyways, that's where we're going. When you visit the historic area of Jekyll Island, you'll walk in the footsteps where the likes of J.P. Morgan, William Rockefeller, Vincent Astor, Joseph Pulitzer, and William K. Vanderbilt once vacationed. Some even built vacation cottages there. But there's that word again, cottages. The millionaire cottages on Jekyll are what the rest of us would call mansions. They were grand, lavish, and befitting the society who frequented the homes in the club months, which was generally during the winter, usually January through April. The cottages didn't come first, however. What attracted these powerful and wealthy men was the Jekyll Island Club, which opened in 1888. It was built as a hunting club for wealthy northerners, but evolved into the most exclusive club in the United States. All architecture reflects that period of time, so Victorian as well as Edwardian. But the crown jewel is the Queen Anne-style club, now a hotel, with its impressive turret. It's one of my favorite getaway destinations, and not just because there are ghosts there, but I'm not going to lie, that is a huge plus. They used to be more open about their ghosts and even had an archive of ghost stories on their website, which detailed some of the sightings and activity, but they don't do that anymore. A ghost they still sometimes admit to, though, is the phantom bellboy who's dressed in 1920s attire. It's said he's especially fond of helping guests staying in the hotel for weddings, in particular grooms. Speaking of bellmen, during one visit, I spoke with a bellman named Mike. On a previous visit, we had taken a ghost tour by horse-drawn carriage that was pulled by a massive black horse named Voodoo, which isn't that just too fabulous? I really got a big kick out of that. Anyway, so I knew some of the stories about the hotel and the surrounding cottages from that because it's not just the hotel that's haunted. In fact, historic Jekyll and its millionaire cottages may have the most haunted houses all in one place of anywhere I've ever been. Because a great number of the cottages have ghost stories associated with them too. Some of which I'll get to. I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit here, but stick with me. I'll bring us back to focus here in just a second. Anyway, let's first start with Mike. I asked him how long he'd worked at the Jekyll Island Club. I don't remember if he said it was 10 years or 17 years, but it was something like that, a very long time. Long enough that he might have some info about the paranormal activity there. Maybe even some experiences of his own. When I mentioned I couldn't find ghost stories on the website anymore, he said they don't like advertising their paranormal side so much nowadays, and won't mention specific room numbers when they do answer questions about ghosts like he was doing for me. They used to, but then guess what happened? People. They'd go around knocking on those doors of the haunted rooms and disturbing the guests who were staying there. 
However, sometimes they do have a ghost hunt weekend. I think it's actually the company Ghost Hunt Weekends that puts it on. People are allowed to investigate then. From past research, I know some of the haunted room numbers, but out of respect, I'll refrain from sharing them and instead just relate stories in a more general way. Like when Mike shared with me. He said that he didn't believe in ghosts and had never had any experiences personally, but there was one family, a mom, dad, and daughter, who were staying in one of the veranda rooms on the annex side. Which, I guess there are two things to explain about the Jekyll Island Club for those who are not familiar. The original clubhouse, the part with the turret, has rooms, but an annex was later added adjacent to it with more rooms. That's where you'll find the veranda rooms, which have glass-enclosed porches attached to them that I am obsessed with. We got to stay in one once, luckily during November when we could take advantage of cooler temperatures. The porches might get a little too warm to be any fun in the summer, even though they are air-conditioned, but I'm a little heat-sensitive the older I get. Anyway, so during their stay, the family, they'd always been super friendly. But that morning when Mike saw them, they were tired, frazzled, and checking out. But he knew they weren't due to leave that day, so concerned, he asked if anything was wrong. The mom explained that the daughter had seen a man in their room during the night, one who wasn't there when they turned the light on. It freaked them all out so bad, no one got back to sleep. Mike went to get a picture of old men and their wives seated at a dinner table. One of the men was standing behind his wife, and that's the one the little girl pointed to and said, That's him. That's who I saw. I wish I had thought to ask him if he still had the photo or knew who the man was, but I didn't. Anyway, knowing their daughter may have seen a ghost did not comfort them or change their mind about ending their stay earlier than planned. Speaking of children, Mike also said that sometimes guests reported hearing children running in the halls on the third floor in the clubhouse side of the hotel. On that particular visit, that's where we were staying, and we did hear the ghost children running around. Except, at first, we didn't know that no children were staying in the hotel the first two nights we were there. A family with three kids checked into the room next to us during our last couple of nights, which is how we discovered there were no other kids before that, even though we heard them running around upstairs. We each had balconies, and in the mornings we found ourselves drinking coffee out there about the same time. During a chat, we asked if the kids were having fun, but they said they wished there were other kids there to play with. We said we thought there might be some staying upstairs, but the mom said no. When we checked in, the front desk made a big deal about how nice it was to see some kids here finally. They hadn't had any in a while ever since school started back up. Another great story that Mike shared was when I said that it was my mission to stay in every cottage on the island, which in addition to the hotel, you can also book rooms at 
either the Ocean Club at the beach or right by the hotel in one of the cottages, including the Sansusi, Crane, and Cherokee cottages. However, Mike warned me I may be in for more than I bargained for in the Sansushi. I'm not sure that it can be truly considered a cottage, really, but J. Pierpont Morgan built it as a six-unit apartment building for club members, so it was a residence of sorts. But the hotel considers it a cottage, so I will too. Our ghost tour guide showed us a great photo she'd taken on her phone of a ghostly face peering out of one of the top floor windows there during the daytime. The next day on that visit, and every time we've gone back since then, I've tried and tried to recreate it from different angles and different times of the day to see if I can catch a reflection or shadows or something like that to recreate it, but I've never been able to. Anyway, Mike said women who have stayed in the Sansuchi have reported waking up in the middle of the night after feeling like someone was touching them, only to find no one there. They've also reported feeling taps on their shoulders, and maybe even reported them on their behinds, from the frisky phantom who may or may not be J.P. Morgan. Before the club opened itself up to wives and families, it was a man's only kind of place, but Morgan would sneak his mistress there. That's also in part why he built the Sansushi. However, another thing Morgan was fond of doing was smoking his cigars and some reports sometimes smelling the scent, even though no one's smoking. But my favorite cottage is the Hollyborn, sometimes also called the Bridge Builder's Cottage. You can't stay in it, but it was open for tours on our last visit. It has these fabulous glass front doors, and on our ghost tour, our guide said some have seen a little ghost girl peering out from the inside when they approach the doors at night. Of course, the next night, we had to go try that. We didn't see her, but I almost gave myself a heart attack on our way to investigate. I was so busy playing with a new camera that I didn't see the deer right in front of me. They weren't afraid of me at all, and luckily they weren't aggressive either. Thankfully, they just gave me an annoyed look before crossing the sidewalk and going about their nightly business. Like I mentioned earlier, people have also reported paranormal activity in the Crane and Cherokee cottages, too. The Indian Mound Cottage is so named for the Indian burial mound that's literally in its front yard. Some have reported unusual happenings at that house also. You drive by it, as well as the Mistletoe Cottage that's right next door, and the Moss Cottage before that, on your approach to the Jekyll Island Club. You can see all of those cottages during a Christmas Lights driving tour of Jekyll Island during the holidays. It decks its halls, so to speak, with lights galore that include some parts of the historic district. And the Jekyll Island Club puts up a massive outdoor Christmas tree that doesn't reach quite as high as its turret, but close, which makes it a super impressive and festive sight. One I'm sure that delights not only visitors, but also any restless spirits roaming around.
thank you so much for tuning in for our exploration of the best places to find the ghosts of Christmas past. The second episode of the Haunted Christmas Season here on the Haunt Johns podcast. My name is Courtney Morock, and it's been my pleasure to be your host and guide for this audio journey. Next week, I have a little treat in store for you. Did you know that the winter solstice is the second most haunted time of the year? Samhain, or Halloween, is the first. Except, the hauntings that happen during Halloween aren't quite the same as the ghosts that come to visit during the Christmas season slash winter solstice. If anything, they might be more like those of Dia de los Muertos. Samhain is more of a, the dead in general coming back. Yule hauntings are much more Dickens-esque, like Marley and the Ghosts of Christmas Past, Present, and Future. Winter solstice hauntings have a purpose and some link to the season's death-rebirth theme. But regardless of the reason or season, if a ghost comes to visit, it makes for a good story. It just works out nicely that Christmastime ghost stories are a little less scary and a bit more heartwarming. That's what we're aiming for next week when I'll share an original story with you called Making Merry, Night of the Living Christmas Decorations. It doesn't exactly involve either ghosts or, as the title might imply, zombies, but in a way, possessed objects are involved and it's definitely full of Christmas spirit. If you're curious to listen to this stocking stuffer for your ears, the best way to ensure you don't miss it is to subscribe to the Haunt Jaunts podcast if you haven't already. And now it's time for me to ho, 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 hop on out of here. Until we sail the airwaves together again, ciao for now. <laughs>